0: Nine minutes it is before 8 p.m. You tuned into Metro FM Talk, our last instalment for this year. We're back with you again in the new year in 2021, and uh, what a year it certainly has been. And uh, to uh, join me this evening to try and make sense, I guess, uh, of uh, our political economy, our socio-economic reality, and in particular, uh, finding ourselves as we do in the throes of a once-in-a-century public health crisis. Uh, what we make of the response to COVID-19, uh, all of which, I guess our constituent parts of the year that was, and uh, I'm joined on the line by uh, Lebohang Peku, a Political Economist and Senior Research Fellow at the Trade Collective, also joined by uh, Angelo Fick, Analyst and uh, Director of Research at ASRI. Uh, Lebohang and Angelo, good evening to the pair of you
1: and welcome. Thank you, Aya. Thank you, Aya thank you, Lebo. good to hear from both of you.
0: Let me start off with you. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, when the year started, uh, none of us uh, would have been able to imagine, uh, I guess, the kind of uh, disruption that would be wrought on our lives and uh, sort of thinking about where we are now. Uh, I mean, maybe take us back to where you were in January, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, just uh, in the work that you do and in your analysis of what's happening in our society, where you think we were in January relative to where we are now.
2: Hmm.
3: good question it seems like so long ago i mean i think certainly there was a greater sense of optimism they this was not really foreseeable like we had only just heard that there was something like this that was on its way already there had been economic contractions however especially in the mining sector especially in the manufacturing sector and remember that already just in been um, for the last year and a half there has been the notation with the notion that this country is in a technical recession, whatever that does or doesn't mean, but there has been a contraction growth for quite some time. So what the coronavirus has done is only to exacerbate that. I think what, else, what, what was also anticipated then with the local government elections and everything that comes with that changing landscape, the potential for perhaps renewal and growth from the ground up, especially at local, local government level, um, for the kind of accessibility and the new forms of leadership, um, what we hope would be leadership change. Really, it doesn't really happen, to be honest, at local government level. We're not as, we're not, we're not as perceptive and as attuned to it. I think that it's an idea um, of something that we would like to see, much more responsive, much more you know, accountable, close to the ground leadership, but that's not really the experience. I think the idea of it, the performative nature of it, the going out and campaigning, was something that was highly anticipated. I think the other thing, of course, is the budget, um, the the fiscus, um, and the way in which the fiscus um, under um, Minister Titumbo has become quite hawkish. Um, he has a very hawkish approach to the to the budget, a very you know, he's kind of a quasi of mm-hmm. austerity type. Um, minister, he has inherited, um, or rather carried over, a lot of the, I think, quite unpalatable tendencies that he carried, that he had when he was still the governor of the Reserve Bank. So I think that at, at the beginning of this year, we were wondering what the what, what, what the budget would look like, what the state of the nation was going to was going to look like, and we're also wondering what employment and you know employment figures were going to look like, and then of course you know the distribution of 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 of. Um, um, you know, bailout to state owned enterprises mm. where that would leave us, and finally, the kind of public perception around corruption, so the on the commission was you know on its way, was pending, and the idea that there was going to be this cleanup again, extremely performative in my view, but the mm. idea that there was a, a, the possibility of something different. Um, the possibility of finally some form of consequence management that is meaningful and and, and tangible that has it finally roll. But, I mean, yeah, mm. the coronavirus has yeah. pretty much upended so much of all of this.
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly. And Angela, I want to bring you in here because I think you know many people have argued throughout the course of the year that you know the coronavirus has really triggered certain impulses in sort of our ruling elite um, that uh, some people felt harkened back to. I guess, the old sort of command-type economies. Uh, well, uh, whereas on the other end, I think for, for a long time, you know, there was a lot of sentiment, be it at the World Health Organization and even globally, that South Africa was doing a good job in, in being able to contain uh, this virus. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I can say the same now, Andrew.
1: Yes, I think that uh, I agree with much of what Léberhan mm-hmm. mm-hmm. has said. Um, in terms of what has happened since March 26th, I think going into uh, the crisis, there were expectations that were fulfilled and expectations that I think were not fulfilled. Uh, all sorts of issues that I think we may have planned for 2020 uh, had to be put, uh, well, sort of, were either delayed or had to be abandoned. Um, and some of those, I think, have dire political consequences for South Africa. The kind of changes we would have envisioned had we started in January and February and moved on. Uh, to have greater cleanup in corruption. That was set back massively, um, precisely around the PPE corruption, uh, in the lockdown period. Uh, the kind of concerns and delusions we have, may have had about our country, uh, were also radically, um, revealed to be illusions and delusions. Let's not forget the death of Colin's Causa. Uh, let's not forget the conduct of the South African National Defence Force and the executive's uh, defence of that conduct um, in Alexandria um, and around mm-hmm. the country. And then also the kind of fault lines in our republic around the access to resources and services sure. that is so skewed towards the wealthy and away from the poor. That was revealed mm-hmm. massively in the critical healthcare care systems that have already been crippled by maladministration administration and all sorts of other problems now got compounded by corruption and poor management. And so I think, you know, if we knew in twenty in January 2020 what we now know, um, I think our actions prior to March 26th might have been a lot more urgent in that kind of thought experiment. But I think Mm -hmm. what we've seen in the last nine months is just how poorly prepared we were as a society for crisis um, and how Mm -hmm. poorly many leaders at local and provincial, as well as the national government, We're equipped to deal with crisis precisely Mm. because of the backlog brought about by, I don't say nine years, I say almost two decades of mismanagement um, and putting organization over country, putting party before people um, Mm. and increasingly putting profits before people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's quite interesting, I mean, you know, what, uh, what, what Angelo is saying, uh, just on that score of saying, you know, this really, I guess, made more pronounced the structural fault lines of our society, the inequity of our society. Um, mm. And I guess in many ways also uh, sort of foregrounded this idea that, uh, you know, you can't really run a society in this 21st century with all of the crises that we have that doesn't have a very strong state that is able and capable to deliver. Uh, you know, mm. and some people might say, well, in a way, it's sort of staved off the debates around privatizing key parts of our economy. But in a way, it's mm. also, I guess, shined a spotlight on, you know, how deep the institutional uh, and op- organizational weaknesses have been across the state—not just at a national level where the policy is made, but uh, mm. more importantly at a local level and, and at a provincial level, where where some of the operational and day-to-day decisions need to be
1: made.
3: Mm. Well, I mean, what is a capable state? I think that's probably a, a good place to to parachute into into this into this um, conversation, because one would argue, would argue that it's it's really a, a form of governance that is able to function with some autonomy away from really narrow party interests. And I think, as, as Angela rightly says, you know, this, you know party first versus country first uh, has become a really important. Um, fault line, but also an important crevice in being able to work in a coordinated way and to to achieve goals that are consistent and coherent. Right, so it's it's really about the ability to work with some effectiveness and to think around a national plan of action that is not just lip service, but that is really about long term, longitudinal services um, and and critical economic um you know delivery deliverables that are not just about the short term they're not, they're not just about 2030 which quite frankly in in, in economic terms and in, and in legacy terms is as good as saying tomorrow but 50 100 year terms for example and that really are, are going to transcend um narrow party political dogma and really go into the notion of what a national plan of action a, a legacy plan of action could really look like, and that needs a lot of innovation, right? It needs a lot more um, intuition. It needs a lot more intellectual maturity than I think the, the, the governing party has has displayed over the last twenty six years. And it also needs a, a, a cross a, a cross party, cross ideological, or even trans ideological approach to this. Mm. So I mean, when we're, we're talking about the tripartite alliance, which is really you know a really strange marriage of three, three entities that are. Mutually, mutually, you know, mutually um, codependent, but in, and yet in many ways at odds and at completely in disagreement, in, in, uh, fundamentally, that's just not good enough, and that's not good enough to build state capabilities in a sustained manner. Um, and I think that the president, President Ramaphosa, has also had a massive um He's completely underutilized the political comp- capital that he had about 18 months ago when everybody was quoting him and quoting, you know, Hina Sikela's song and everybody wanted to be sent somewhere or other, Tumamena, that's been completely squandered. Um, the capacity constraints that we see, especially some of the really substandard political appointees, uh, that again is not something that, that Corona didn't do that. I mean, that's been a thing, right? So the Auditor General's reports over the years at local government level have, have mentioned these um, capacity deficiencies and they have said that it's a lack of skill. It's a lack of, it's a failure to execute. It's about deployment. And yet, municipalities continue to disregard these recommendations. So, where to from
0: here? Mm, mm, mm. It certainly does complicate things somewhat. Um, and I think, you know, what you're raising there, Le Buhang, is a, is a combination, I guess, of sort of long running systemic issues within our, uh, you know, a cooperative system of governance, as people call it. And I don't know how cooperative it is. Uh, but also, I guess, the the point that you're raising around the Tumamina dividend, and Angela, I want to hear your view on this, um, also speaks to how, I guess, the, there was a certain naivety, even in the public discourse, uh, that uh, a certain persona and uh, a certain individual uh, would be able to rise up above, I guess, the party political parapet, um, and be able to direct the country in a certain kind of Uh, a more cohesive direction what what do you make of that and do you think i guess angelo people are a lot more cynical now of that kind of discourse and that kind of approach than probably what they would have been uh, i guess
1: at the start of the year so yes there are two issues in that particular approach one is the rendition of a democratically elected system and the president that it appoints or elects through parliament and treating that president like a king So you expect this Mm. president to do all sorts of things as if with a magic wand, um, as if Mm. there isn't a complex society that has all sorts of things going on in it, um, in which the president's power is limited by a whole series of things, which does not in any way, I think, absolve Cyril Ramaphosa and the African National Congress of the things that they have been implicated in that have served South Africans particularly poorly during this last year. Um, And the other problem is South Africans' own expectations – of what they are expected to do to build a capable state, And here I think somebody, um, there's somebody I always increasingly have to think through, and that's De Debele's work um, from 14 years ago, when he said we tend to focus on corruption as the actions of individuals, when actually we never ask about what enables corruptibility to begin with. And in this society, I think the materialism, the drive towards extreme wealth, was not an accident of history, it was the actual act of, you know, sort of performances by individuals and by groups of individuals to participate in that amassing of, 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 of you know, extreme wealth, uh, to the point where well over a decade ago now, a very senior official in the governing party could make the statement, I did not struggle to be poor. Well, no one struggles to be poor. Poor people struggle to keep alive, and we have seen that in this crisis. And and so the ramaphoria, as it was called in 2019, Mm. was always going to be misplaced because it simply dealt with corruption in government by individuals or groups of individuals. We need, as a society, to revisit very fundamental and core value in ourselves and in our institutions, whether it is the family, education, And think about what it is we have built over the last 26 years and why it seems so contradictory and betrays so many of the aspirations Mm. that we have. And this crisis has taught us starkly and tragically just how easily those illusions we have about ourselves, uh, a group of people who are going to be sent, a group of people who are going to resolve and (laughs) undo damage to the state, uh, how illusory that can be when actually the foundation of so many aspects of living in the society is to create inequality. It is to mm. create a kind of distinction between the many have-nots and the few haves. This idea that you will have mm. politics for the many, but you'll have economics for the few. Mm. And increasingly, I think, as South Africans realized over the last year that fundamental overhaul of the state will require not just the change of government, like the way of governing party. That, as the Constitutional Court indicated, a change in how we think of accountability mm-hmm. um, by changing our electoral system, adapting it to the greater needs of this moment in society. And perhaps we need to go further and ask ourselves as individuals how we need to change in order to make that so, capable state that Little Hang refers to so that it's not just made for us.
0: Uh, uh, uh. I want us to pause here for a second, uh, Mele Buhang and uh, Angelo, and uh, take one of our, our listeners who's calling us all the way uh, from Nongoma in the KZN and uh, wanting to weigh in there. And I think, uh, Angelo, a lot that you've said there that uh, I want us to come back to. But uh, let's take uh, Christopher, who's all the way out uh, in Nongoma. Christopher, good evening to you and welcome.
4: Yes, sir. How are you? I'm
0: fine, thanks. How are you?
4: I'm good. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure, Bob. Um... Uh, I don't know whether uh, our guests, they understand this is Zulu. Well, go ahead. I'll try and translate. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) 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 No, basically, I'm coming from Kwanongom, KwaZulu Natal. I'm one of the young people about who are doing it. uh, My businesses from home. Um, I started a tap shop um, around, um, say, March, just before the, the lockdown um but the thing is when 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 we faced the, the lockdown restrictions um there were so many um procedures that we had to follow um uh, tax shop owners uh we we got the grants um told is but we we had to go through municipalities there to uh-huh. And they had to send them applications via U.S.P. I don't know where I'm relevant to the topic. No, you are. Um, you are all right. Mm. But basically, about what Melibat uh those grants, about uh, because of the mm. corruption in Berati, and my regulations. Mm. What mm. they go and visit, a matag shop, a the laba, communities there too. I mean, we 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 went to municipalities there to. Even mm-hmm. now, I'm a young person. I'm a, uh, I'm a university dropout um, due to financial constraints. But I managed to work hard, just sure. to put a bread on the table, with and I started mm-hmm. a shop. But I I got figure lockdown, and effect is a lockdown. Zaba corner government what bag a ma a Macrant or Melti at all eight is a value. But when we enquire within municipalities there too, they just tell us which, okay we had to te- uh, to take about fifty people. But when you go and screen go down and screen those people, they don't even run in Ama shops, a bunch relatives, the the officials are my so it okay. corrupt in economy, South Africa, e he sends what is Philatina as Abanda which is is rejected by your government where to and at the end of the day the Azambuti we're not educated we we not yet educated, we don't have qualifications, mm. but we're working hard we're sure. to we push the economy to because I'm attacked shop is playing a huge role we sure. economy to but that I guess we don't do really just to uplift us, we would see Kobe
0: Christophe, and you for coming through and sharing your story. And uh, we'll certainly pick up on some of the themes that you're raising there. Local level political economies and the role of corruption. And uh, I guess uh, the role of local elites there. But uh, also, I think uh, from the message that uh, Christophe is communicating there about the process of signing up for some of the relief. Especially if you're a, a, a trader in the informal sector. Uh, showing us that we need to return to all of these tasks of developing databases, undoing the spatial legacy of apartheid and really creating, I guess, in our townships viable economic spaces. All of the stuff that we've, I guess, kicked down the can over the last 25 years. Well, it seems uh, this year the chickens came home to roost. We'll take this brief break and uh, when we come back i continue with uh, Angelo and uh, Mele Buhang-Peku.
2: Feel good. Feel Metro FM. It's where you're at on Metro FM Talk.
0: 13 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's uh, the last installment of Metro FM Talk for this year. We'll be back with you again in the new year. And this, uh, uh, I guess, uh, this time around, we're making sense of uh, what has happened uh, in 2020 and uh, uh, talking about a wide array of issues, COVID-19, uh, our systemic response to COVID-19, the capacity and capability. Uh, of our state to respond uh, least of all to the public health crisis uh, but also to the other many other spillovers if i think about unemployment insurance if i think about uh, some of the issues christopher from nongom was raising around comprehensive social security uh, and as i said before we went to the break uh, all of the things that uh, we've certainly uh, been dawdling over and uh, trying sort of to kick for touch and hoping somebody else uh, uh, would deal with uh, or a different generation would deal with well it seems. Some of those chickens have come home to roost, and uh, we've had to deal with many things at once, uh, and all of this triggered and catalyzed uh, by COVID-19. Now, Mele Buhang, I want to bring you in here uh, and just get some of your reflections on the comments that Christopher was making, and uh, uh, certainly the bulk of what he was talking to, one was the issue of corruption, the second one mm. was uh, you know, the inaccessibility of some of the relief it's around exactly. COVID-19, um, and then add to that, of course, uh, saying that these are some of the things that really... Uh, uh, kill and sort of snuff out the light of initiative on the part of many young people. And it seems like every door you go to is shut in your face.
5: Mm.
3: Yeah, no, that was, um, that, 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 that call was quite touching, wasn't it? I mean, the thing is, the problem with this is that, again, <laughs> these, these issues and the inefficacy, the inefficiencies, the, the, the speed bumps, they predate Corona. Um, by mm-hmm. By years, basically, so the thing is the problem is that informal traders and, and, and small businesses small, small scale entrepreneurs um, i don 't want to say informal traders because they 're not always informal actually they 're just you know parallel, they might be the first sector, which is actually one of the most sure. important sectors, just undocumented, but they haven 't been able to trade for months because of the lockdown, um, mm-hmm. in addition to that, in order to then access any form of relief. You have to obtain a license to operate from the local municipality. You have to register through, you know, the company, you know, CIPC. You also have to register and get your taxes um, okay. So go through the revenue for authority stuff. And then you also have to go to the unemployment insurance fund. That is a lot of paper for even a large enterprise, a large-scale enterprise. Even large businesses find it quite difficult often to get their paperwork in order. And I think that the state needs to inherently begin to stop thinking, you know, criminalizing small businesses or emerging businesses or businesses that, for whatever reason, have not quite gotten around to regularizing their paperwork and Mm -hmm. begin to create some forms of channels and pathways into regularizing without criminalizing. And that's therein lies the rub. So, you know, the minute that you then appear at SARS um, they want you for everything that, you know, they want you for your blood uh, and, and the blood of all of the ancestors who have gone before you. And it's a bit up, it's off-putting. And I think to also link into that is that the minister, I, mean, I think it was in May, June, when the Ministry of Small Business Development, they then reported that, they, that the department had formalized about, I think, a couple of thousand spousal shops during COVID-19. And then they processed about 4,000. Now, that, that might sound... Impressive, but bear in mind that this represents less than 3%, Aya and Angelo, mm. of the many retailers that are mapped across this country by, you know, by various market research institutions. I think there are like 120, or 130,000 such retailers, so only 3% of them were able to access any form of COVID relief, which is absolutely appalling. And to go back to what the young man was saying um, from from that you know this is really one of the reasons why this, the you know many young people feel disenfranchised. I, I'm not sure how I feel about the notion that the state um, is supposed to give jobs per se, because I think that that's become mm. that's, that's become a bit dodgy sounding, especially because we have a rather corrupt, captured. Um, compromised state um, in, in many countries. I think it, 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 it takes on a very ambiguous meaning. But I certainly think that the state has an obligation to create an enabling environment. It has the sure, obligation sure. to create education systems which are versatile, which are nimble, which are agile, which can produce um, graduates who are able to do anything the heck they want to do, uh-huh. not just to be, you know... Um, not just to be people who are who are only good to go and work body so to speak, sure. but people sure. who can be entrepreneurial. I also think that the notion that state the state then abandons young people, very little social social support. So this 350 rand that came during the COVID nineteen pandemic, which is for people who don't who are not eligible for any other form of grant, but have not been able to then access some form of grant. Um, funding, some kind of transitional funding is is, is is really quite petty because this means that that is the money that people are supposed to use to find transport, get taxis to go from mm-hmm. one place to, to go to, to pursue the hospital. Print CVs or print business plans, and so on and so forth. So the state, its its actions and its and and, and its rhetoric are quite far apart. So this notion that we want to be you know become the fourth uh, promote the fourth industrial revolution, we mm. want to be cutting edge, we want to be world class again a problematic term. I mean, who is the world? But we want to be a leading mm. economy in terms of knowledge science technology, and yet our actions do nothing. Um, so how, you know, the state needs to create an enabling environment, an enabling education system, and certainly to provide much more support to entrepreneurs. I mean, I think, mm. um, previous occasions, uh, um, you and I have spoken, I have bonga, and, 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 and I won't labor it, but we have to have example, bank credit charges, which appreciate that small businesses need to have capital extension in order to ensure that they can function when, for example, they have not yet been paid. So 30, 60, 90-day free loans, those sorts of things are really necessary. The kind of loans that banks were offering during this time, soft loans as if you're a three-year-old child asking for pocket money from your granddad, where, you know, oh, we're, we're not going to just give you a lump sum of 50,000 rand or 100,000 rand, we Send us, a, send us receipts and we're going to pay yes, for your petrol. Yes, yes, yes. That's really demoralizing. So I feel for the young man and I feel for the many yeah. people across this True. country who are grappling, young business people um, and even established business people who are grappling with this during this mm. time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mele Wuhanga, I, I mean, I wanted us to pause there because I think uh, you're sort of picking out a very big issue that I wanted us to, mm. uh, to get to. And we'll certainly pick it up on the other side of the spot break uh, with yourself mm. and uh, Angelo, which is around, I mm. guess... The ex- not only the accessibility of some of the support, but I mean the design issues around uh, some mm. of the support, be it the 350 mm. Rand uh, implemented through SASA or even that 200 billion Rand credit uh, guarantee scheme, which constituted mm. nearly sort of 40% uh, of the entire mm. half a trillion stimulus that was announced by the president. We'll certainly come back mm. to those themes after this brief break. Uh, you can certainly call us in as well on 089 110 We'll take your calls after this. 24 minutes it is after 8pm, and uh, we are making sense of the year that was, uh, 2020, and uh, in particular trying to grapple, I guess, with how as a society we've tried to respond, the national effort uh, to uh, contain uh, COVID-19. And uh, just before we went to the break, uh, Amele Buhangpek, were making the point uh, that, uh, you know, when we think of uh, the story of Christopher, who called us all the way out in Nongoma, and uh, some of the hurdles that uh, he had to go through to access support, uh, to just continue operating and trading. Uh, uh, during uh, the hard lockdown, it certainly does complicate things somewhat, uh, Angelo. And uh, uh, I think uh, just piggybacking on the point that uh, Wuhan was making around uh, the credit guarantee scheme. I mean, if you think about some of the conditions that went into that, uh, and uh, you think about the whole idea behind it, which was really to give banks uh, uh, an opportunity to act as a conduit for support that had been underwritten by the central bank and the treasury. And uh, you know, if people then, of course. Defaulted on those loans, they would then share the downside of that particular risk uh, you know with uh, with those entities and it seems that you know it was business as usual you know it was the loans that went uh, to the traditional people who already had relationships with the banks rather than actually reaching out i guess to to many people who ordinarily would have not been within the orbit of many of these banks and I think the three hundred and fifty rand issue is is quite similar there in terms of the barriers to accessing. The kind of support that uh, is is made on offer during this moment.
1: Yes, and you know, so the problem is that we have bad bureaucracy, uh, or we have the worst of bureaucracy, but not the best of bureaucracy. Um, the point of bureaucracy is that it should be anonymous; it should be undifferentiating. Uh, if the factors on the ground look the same, and in this last year, what we've seen is a repeat of the micro level in South Africa as a phenomenon that has been happening around the world at the macro level uh, since the 2008 financial crisis, where those who have, unto them more shall be given, those who do not, even that which they have, will be taken from them. And the numbers game is a very significant game because it reveals the obscenity of this inequality. Because what we've created at a very small scale, if we think through the work of somebody like the Egyptian economist Samir Amin, is a local potentate of elites, Um, who are trying to uh, participate in a global economy in ways that advantage Mm -hmm. them, and they don't really seem to care about the massive precariat, the group of people whose lives are precarious and in some senses expendable in this project of profit-making that surround them. And Christopher's story... Um and his, his Zulu reminded me of the two years I lived in in good good and had to learn to speak Isizulu on Langali Balele Street. Reminded me also of those many people on Langali Balele Street who traded, right? Whose mm-hmm. trade would have been interrupted and as he indicated, the state continues to see them as nothing but potential criminal elements. So they have to fill out all the forms to prove all sorts of things that their bona fide actions have shown them to be dedicated towards, mm-hmm. but that the state has not reached out to them prior to this to make them more compliant with the bureaucracy. The people who then benefit are those larger corporations and bigger players who understand the bureaucracy, fill out the paperwork, but also can use that very paperwork and bureaucracy Mm. to enrich themselves and to mm. the disadvantaged people. So the number of examples of companies who filed for UIF but didn't pay it on to the workers, and the number of organizations that suddenly declared that they were in all sorts of crises when they hadn't really been treating their workers very well prior mm. to the lockdown, but were now using the suffering of those workers as another moment to double dip. Mm. Our I mean, some weren't even contributing when,
0: to the UIF. You know. So, sorry? No, I'm saying some weren't even contributing to, you know, the Contributory Insurance Scheme, the UIF, or or even, you know, granting their their workers any rights that are due to to anybody who's employed in this country.
1: And wanted to continue to maintain their profit levels during a crisis um, (laughs) by downscaling their workforces, so making more people unemployed to keep shareholders and managers at the salary levels that they are at. And government is no exception to this. If you think about the 350 rand that somebody like Christopher has to get and make a living with um, in these times when, you know, food prices escalated and suppliers of goods suddenly charged more because they were profiteered in a sense, members of parliament, members of the executive earn money that are unimaginable to such people. Um, and so the legislators, who are technically the public servants, are starving out the masses, who are treated as nothing more than peasants and whose desire to have a state work for them is seen as a sense of entitlement. So there's a projection onto people that they're entitled Mm. and the people who pull the purse strings themselves are not. And we hear the same kind of rhetoric when people say things like, yes, but, you know, taxpayers, taxpayers, taxpayers. Everybody in this country who participates in a good or service pays some form of VAT. If the only thing you're buying is, you know, raw vegetables, you're the only person in the country that probably doesn't pay any tax. So we're all contributors to this fiscal, oh, yeah. but some people have more sophisticated means to escape that net. And that, sure. I think, is partly why we sit in the situation that we have. But it's not all doom and gloom, because it's precisely people of Christopher's generation who can, by their political in- involvement, change the future for this country and for themselves. Because people mm-hmm. my age, who are now entering the second half of our lives, are not likely to see the second half of the century. And it's people like Christopher And his generation who need to take Mm. over the reins and make Mm. sure that we have a society for them that they can live in and do not repeat the same kinds of horrors that we've experienced over the last year and ten years
0: yeah yeah indeed and uh, I want Mm. us at this point uh, uh, to uh, take one of our callers here David was uh, calling us all the way from Campton Park and uh, we'll also get uh, some uh, reflections from uh, Mele Buhang about uh, that point there of you know bureaucracy where you've got the worst of it uh, but you certainly not don't get any of at uh, the best of what a bureaucracy can bring uh, because i think a lot of what uh, we're going to talk about when we touch on corruption when we touch on uh, uh, you know uh, the looming local government elections interfaces with that very nicely but david you are out in kempton park good evening to you and
2: welcome uh, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just want to also add a little bit with a sure. limited knowledge of the political scenario that uh, is unfolding in South Africa. Firstly, I want to start with the recent uh, uh, topic that is about uh, the uh, governing party. The mm. Secretary General is facing a recall um, and uh, due to the statutes that we, uh, that were uh, agreed upon at the uh, recent conference and um, to my uh, dismay it's only one clause of the recall of detainted members but there are some elements that are affecting the masses like the nationalization or like moving the reserve bank to be under the state it is totally muted uh, seemingly the governing party is selective on topics that suiting a uh, certain agenda at a certain period like i would like also to echo the level uh, issue of saying the captured state uh, this state is a captured state depending on which side of the coin we are and secondly i also want to come back to the issue of public servants it's a pity that uh, the state has got a cash uh, cow in the public servants everybody's eyeing the pensions of public servants. But looking after the cow that supplies the milk is very difficult in South Africa. I thank you.
0: Thank you very much uh, for that, uh, David. And Mele Gohang, I mean, just uh, some of your thoughts there on uh, the um, political questions that uh, uh, our caller that David is raising. Uh, It certainly does uh, raise some interesting questions, I guess, about... Uh, you know our current uh, conjuncture, and maybe before we get your comments, there let's maybe take our second caller, who's all the, all the way out in Midrand. Lungis so good evening to you and welcome.
5: Good evening. Uh, 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 thanks for taking my call. Well, well, sure. n- my n- my my major problem is, uh, I think when all this tumor has started, we we had hoped maybe that it's possible for. I'm opposed to operate outside the parameters of the ANC. I must say, initially, I'll, I'll say from from my point of view as well, uh, I feel like there's been quite a lot of uh, a lack of decision-making from his side, given the fact that we ended up working on a lot of committees on issues that we needed to react on. So because if you look at our economy, even from the previous year, it was not doing well. So in the current year with COVID, COVID actually exposed quite a lot of things because I think another problem with corruption is that you have these guys thinking about themselves first before thinking about the country. Because, I mean, the the procurement in terms of how we, uh, in terms of uh, the PPEs, because it was an emergency, and all these rules that were created, instead of taking these rules in order to help, the, make sure that the economy thrives within that, the opportunities that were seen by most people was also was just looting. So this is this is where the problem is, because at the end of the day, I mean, well, we're not gonna say that set or not, but. Other people see these things as way of fundraising for the organizations and mm. all those, mm. all those kind of mm. things. I think yeah. that's where the problem is. It's like,
4: sure,
5: uh, like Angela said, maybe if we look at restructuring on how we elect people who lead this country, who will be able to, what you call, uh, account directly to people who have elected them, things mm. might change because okay. in the current structure mm. where we only, mm. there are. Only the political, uh, what call political organization accounts to us. That's mm. where five people are not corrupt and eight people are corrupt. And as a result, they can say, no, the organization is not corrupt, it's the individual. Sure, but I think sure. my major problem is that uh, we lack what you call the will to deal mm. with corruption mm. in the main and also sure. there's other things that we've been doing in this economy things like the pledges because i know we had another economic summit now with the uh, with the president did we hear any reports there from last year the people who said we are going to expand this plant or we are going to build this mm. factory here did they build that factory what how many jobs were created did we really create any jobs because sure. I thought okay. we Lunges. went through the same thing again this year, Lunges. and I Lunges. mean, for me, Lunges. it's like Lunges. every Lunges. year we're basically recycling ideas, and sure, we're not moving sure. forward. But Lunges. the the, the major is
0: Lucas. I I think the point is well made, my brother. And uh, just on that last score, I, I mean, to be fair, we certainly mm. did get some updates about uh, you know investment projects that have been delayed, some that have already come online, and some. Uh, that uh, are yet to sort of turn soil and begin, but uh, I think Mm -hmm. the sense is that a lot of the commitments that we made last year uh, still carry over. But I think Medle Buhang uh, quite a few things that Mlungis is raising both when it comes to I guess the the whole sort of state corruption nexus but uh, in addition to that of course I guess uh, you know some of his comments around uh, uh, the leadership style of President Ramaphosa and how he's dealt Mm -hmm. with issues inside the African National Congress and also, I guess, within the West Wing of uh, Union Buildings. Mm, mm.
3: Mm. So, I mean, the, but the ANC is, is very similar to your kind of classical, it's, it's fallen into the foibles of your, your classical post-colonial, post independent well, not, not post-colonial, neo-colonial and post-independent <laughs> African states, right? So, you know, your neo-patrimonialist, which is basically your, your very strong statist, Strong government, strong party, which is either pseudo three- one-party state, which is effectively what, what I think many countries have had, or re- reproductions of of splinters of the same party, um, and then you know this vertical distribution of resources that results in this sort of um, patron-client networks, which are based around powerful individuals or a powerful party, and then of course in South Africa, which characterises the state capture, which I think is. Yeah, you know, it's not, it doesn't entirely um, convey the depth of this. And I think, and, and of course, capture doesn't only happen in South Africa as it happens, as we know. You know most countries have the same kind of clientist, um, a, a vertical, and even sometimes horizontal distributions of favor, um, whether it's related to, um, you know, people's ethnicities, uh, people's uh, regional biases, and so on and so forth. But the problem is that a lot of um Post-independent countries, South Africa, having sadly fallen into the same trap, they've really supplied colonial institutions for the benefit of a few individuals, and that's the sad mm. part. The sad part for me as well. The saddest part is that South Africa had a 30-year head start to do better. So we, you know, we got our uh, whatever you call this. I mean, you know, uh, this dispensation came in 1994, 30 years after most of our, you know, after most of our peer yeah. states. Um, with the exception of perhaps Angola and Mozambique 20 years after them, you would have thought that we would have at least had the humility not to fall into the same quicksand of assuming that we are better, of assuming that we don't have the capacity to, to fall into the, you know, Patronage and the centralization of power um, and, and, and very the cultishness of personality, but the other thing on, on a final note is that that is also linked to the way um, many liberation movements have failed to transition effectively into mm. you know governing parties and I think this language, even of ruling party, has its own has its own dilemmas, right? It has sure. it speaks to a almost a, a feudal relationship with power, the state, and where where people are subjects rather than citizens, rather than active mm. citizens and active agents in this country. And why this is why we have this top down, very top down, very hierarchical pyramid way of, of of ruling of rulership, right? Um, and wh- wh- where where politicians continuously refer to. People, you know, adults as our people. It is such mm. a condescending, problematic. You know, we're not cell phones. You know, you, you can't say our people like you're talking about your cell phone, and um, your grocery, your, your 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 carton of milk at Pick and Pay. You don't get people from from Pick and Pay. These are adults. These are people who have agency, and I think that that is part of the problem. And lastly, that mm. this, this is also the problem with creating cult of personality. These issues didn't arise only in 1994. The African National Congress allowed itself to have one leader in exile, O um, R O'artambo. He, he played his role, in, in and many, in, in many respects he played it magnificently. But that created a bad culture. 30 years, as though there is nobody else who is able. Mm. And I think that this kind of elitism, sure. this very condescending, top-down way of of, of, of of relating to people, relating to power, and assuming that mm. only a few people are entitled and able, Actually take on the reins of power has reproduced itself in many ways um, the source mm-hmm. of favoritism and the, 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 the patronage the the sexism, the hyper masculinity the ways yeah. in which people are now you know indulging in really mm-hmm. macabre politics basically yeah. and, and as, as pe- angelo go. said you know nobody struggled to be poor, but it does yeah, seem that yeah. this disdain pe- that has been you know this is just the, the, the disdain pe- with which so many government you know so many people in the governing party and actually across political parties so I see some very unpalatable trends repeating themselves mm. across opposition lines, in the DA, Mep- in the ESF, and so Mep- on. Mep- we'll have and and, 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 and we'll it have needs a really a, a fresh politics, a
0: complete reignition and reconfiguration of how the Mep- state relates to people. 16 minutes it is before 9pm. And uh, yeah, Mepek, we sorry about that was the end. I, I, I don't know if you probably couldn't hear me. I wanted to... To, to quickly segue to a, uh, uh, an ad break. Uh, but that being said, yeah. I think a, a lot perfect. of very important issues that you're raising there about, uh, I guess, the nature of the political party as, uh, I guess, a social organism in our society. And Angelo, I want to bring you in here on this score because I think it makes a perfect segue into uh, some of the debates that are happening inside of the African National Congress as the governing party, uh, a party that's committed itself to unity, to renewal, and yet if we look at any of the developments occurring around the party, uh, then uh, it certainly doesn't uh, speak to any of those uh, commitments. What do you make, I guess, of, of this particular crisis in the historical development of the ANC, coming as it does, of course, as we find ourselves uh, in the throes of COVID-19?
1: So I agree with Reba Khan. These issues in the African National Congress and not New are at the root of that shift from being a liberation movement to being a party that governs a country. Uh, And so even at the superficial level, um, the leaders of the party echoed precisely those post-independence African state leaders of the 1960s that Lebo referred to. Let's not forget it was a head of state of this country that said to a university audience in Johannesburg, the economic heart of the continent and the region, we are not like other Africans generally, when so many symptoms of this society demonstrated that we were like other Africans generally in both the good and the bad. And that also reflected a kind of real pessimism and unveiled for many to see an attitude towards the rest of the continent of South Africa's exceptionalism. The African National Congress being party to that would then necessarily have the same kinds of problems with other post-independence liberation movements had. And we see this in some of the um, ways in which they dealt with the Zimbabwe crisis and ZANU PF. But I think this is not a year of only... You know, sort of disaster stories. One of the things that I think, you know, could be learned by political parties is the work of community action networks during this crisis, where very ordinary people on the ground and civil society organizations took up the challenge and met the slack in a far more productive way, precisely because it was local, the people knew one another, and it was a form of, shall we say, constituency based representation that the people knew who were representing them, they lived in the community, and so they were immediately accountable. And in South Africa, I think part of what the ANC, the DA, the EFF, and all political parties will have to learn is that this idea of parachuting in so-called political experts who are not actually members of the community or were taking members of the community out of their community and catapulting them into suburban households, is not a good way to undo the spatial logics of apartheid and colonialism, and that mm-hmm. I think is something we need to take from this crisis.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and and, and I mean, when you think it, just about that point of uh, you know the questions of the spatial apartheid, I mean, we, we've spoken quite a bit about the African National Congress, uh, but I want us to maybe shift our attention, I guess, to, to, to some of what you've seen happening in the Democratic Alliance. Uh, and what you make of uh, some of the developments there um, as we think about this in the lead up of course to the local government elections where we know that uh, it's primarily going to be fought around local issues uh, you know issues mm-hmm. of access to water access to electricity access to you know some of the social infrastructure that is much needed uh, during this particular moment so 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 i want you to to maybe uh, deliberate and engage on that uh, with us and uh, we'll, we'll we'll take that view just after this
2: brief break Bonga Tower on Metro FM Talk.
0: Ten minutes it is before nine PM. I'm in conversation with the analyst and director of research at Azri Angelo Fick. Also in conversation with political economist and senior research fellow at uh, uh, Trade collective of uh, Lebohang well, Le uh, Before we went to the break, I guess I was sort of assigned uh, uh, posting to, to to sort of my next curiosity, which was around I guess the state of play when we think about some of Uh, our political parties uh, in preparation for the 2021 local government elections. We saw the EFF taking up the Brackenfell issue and many Mm. other sort of worker uh, and uh, uh, race-related issues uh, over the last while. And uh, it seems that the DA, I guess, has uh, had to do its own internal work trying to build a policy platform. uh, And, Mm. uh, you know, in some cases, I guess, really sort of making... Uh, a significant a significant amount of blunders um, in trying to deal mm. and quell internal dissent in the party as well. What do you make mm. of the stakes as we go into uh, you know local government elections next year? And uh, we'll, mm. we've also seen, I guess, some of the parties coming out more recently for some of the by elections.
3: Yeah, so the DA has gotten took a few blue eyes um, over the last year and a half, I think, and and, and the, the biggest ones began with the skirmish with. Um, uh, Auntie Pat, uh, de Leo and then mm. um, the departure of two quite large honchos, and I think that there, that there were black people, um, Moussima Imani, the, the leader, and then, um, and you know, preceded, of course, by Helen Mashaba, um, the mayor of the, you know, still one of the most important metropoles in the country. So there was that, and then this is the return of Helen Zilla, um you know the, the, the her remarks on colonialism and so forth, and I think what there are a couple of things the one is kind of the reconstitution of a particular toxic whiteness that seems to be coming to the fore in the d a so you have people like um Tony León talking about taking the party back and and they most certainly are and remember that the d a has been has its own strange lineage so The the lineage of of the DA also has people like Barry Herzog, if you go back really far. Um, It has an earlier incarnation of the National Party. And I've said before that organizations have memory and they don't forget themselves. And so I wasn't surprised, and I think quite a few of us who watch these things quite closely, we're not not entirely surprised at the way that there seems to be some kind of a black purge within the DA. And and, and I think the, the ways in which the DA has never quite been Welcoming to issues of land restitution, economic empower, you know, black economic empowerment. Uh, trying to be to, to pretend that we're living in a post-racial or trans-racial world, um, notions of meritocracy, and that's really going to its liberal roots in the most rugged sense of what liberalism means. You know, in, in political theoretical terms, which is rugged individualism. Pull yourself up, everybody can make it. You can do it. Um, very, very free market orientated and so on. I mean, very neoliberal, quite frankly, and completely an anathema to African, sen- an Afri- a sense of African community, especially because we don't have. Um, we don't necessarily have wealth, social resources, social wherewithal um, at our disposal, and we rely on a sense of community. So this rugged individualism is quite a anathema The second piece of that mm. is, of course, then um, how this has led to, I think, a complete, you know, all of, all of the blue eyes and the left and, and, the, and the own goals that the DA has been shooting. They've lost four seats in Hauden to three different parties. Uh, and this really is an indication of what they're up against. I mean, they lost seats. In Joburg, to, of all people, Gayton McKenzie's uh, patriotic yes. alliance, remember him? Um they lost a, a couple of seats to the ANC. Um and now they, they, they now have a whole other, you know, series of contenders. Um a, a strangely reinvigorated Freedom Front Plus, which of course is also to do with this reconstituted reconsolidated whiteness which of course is also very much linked in with Trumpism so Trumpism is an Mm, international phenomena mm. Um, you know Macron I think is a Trumpist Boris Johnson is a Trumpist so this kind of reconsolidation of whiteness which I think is extremely toxic extremely disturbing in the economy in social relations in social ethics in political spaces in media spaces and so forth
0: Mm, mm. Angela I guess I mean the same question to you and uh, uh... You know, what do you make of um, sort of other, I guess, uh, you know, political parties outside of the governing party and how sort of they've, I guess, uh, carved out a niche for themselves or formulated their programs in anticipation and preparation for the uh, 2021 local government elections. And I think just that last point that uh, Mepek was making around, you know, this constellation of sort of white right wing um, around Trump, uh, do, do you get a sense that even that global project is being disrupted somewhat? And uh, if so, what implications might that have uh, uh, for you know our political situation here at home?
1: So I think the project of fascism or neo-fascism under the Trump uh, agenda uh, that was echoed in the spaces that Hang outlined uh, really became unpalatable to multinational global capital because they suddenly saw that whatever short-term profits could be had from this, there were really long-term consequences of costs. And so the rug pulled out from under Trump is not just by the American electorate, but by several large corporations that came to be at odds with him. And let's not forget that several large corporations, some of the largest ones, including Facebook uh, and Twitter, these were organizations that would have gone along with this um, because Mm. it profited them to a large extent because they can monetize the kind of hate that is spewed in some of these spaces. That said, I think in the local space, the consequences will be people who felt emboldened by the events between 2015 and 2019 may actually find that their funding routes and their legitimation routes will no longer be there in 2020 in the same way, and they will have to find new ways. I don't think the Trumpism phenomenon is going to go away. I think it's simply going to not have the kind of amplification that it has had for the last four years. Uh, in the South African space, I think the smaller parties, in choosing to become niche parties, are neglecting to fill a gap that is created by the governing party. The governing party exploits all sorts of divisions in South Africa to gain the kind of traction that it has in elections and during um, and in electoral politics. In not building consensus and not building connections between people, but exploiting the divisions of colonialism and apartheid, in the ways that opposition parties seem to want to do, is, I think, also not long-term productive for their survival. Um, The decline in the democratic alliance between 2016 and the by-elections, and they're just a smidgen of a sample of what we could be seeing in 2020, 2021, um, is something I think can't be ignored. And if the economic freedom fighters have an eye on a government prize, if they want to govern in a municipality, or even at a provincial level and at some point in the national level, they cannot continue to want to claim to the minority. And claiming to the minority or laying claim to minoritarian interests um, is not useful because what it does is it makes your party precisely a niche organisation that calls for some mm. people. But people will use you because voters are not stupid to punish other parties that they disagree mm. with, but they will not necessarily put you in government, which really leaves South Africa in an impasse. I think opposition parties should take this opportunity because they haven't done so, and the ANC has been in disarray for at least a decade. And the fact that opposition parties haven't made greater inroads into the ANC's share of the electorate speaks to their own weakness. And that is mm-hmm. something that they would need to address quite urgently. 2016 was a sign of hope for them at local government level. I would hope that many of those smaller parties can pick up and actually extend, and that when the legislation changes and the Electoral Act allows for independent candidates to stand, that communities participate in this, and perhaps in that way we can begin to see the sea change required for people like Christopher to see the second half of mm-hmm. the century and mm-hmm. not have to fight the same battles we have had to for the last 25 years. Sure. Sure, sure.
0: Thanks Mm. for that, uh, Angelo. And maybe, Mele Buhang, let me give you the last word, just briefly, in a minute, because I feel like we've had Mm. a very long conversation, but we haven't touched on labour, and there's something that came to mind as Angelo was speaking, which was, you know, uh, all of the murmurs that we're hearing of, uh, you know, many of those within the Tripartite Alliance who are saying, uh, we're reconsidering, and we feel like we've heard that story before. Uh, But uh, if indeed, I guess, some of them do hold true to their word, what are the prospects of creating alternatives um, that are able to link community, as Angela was saying, with, uh, I guess, uh, a shop floor interest? Mm.
3: So, I mean, there's all, there's already been a, a whole notion that COVID-19 is going to have to shift labor relations quite significantly and also shift what our definitions of work actually are. I think, I mean, we're, we're all talking on fuzzy fuzzy networks um, from our homes and, and and so on, and conducting business from our laptops and so on. So this binary between the work and the home space has already changed, which means that the ways of organizing also need to change and the ways of defining work need to change. Secondly, that there's a new level of security. So, you know, even though the, the one initial positive impact that labor and business and, and, and government representatives did carve out some agreement at Nedlag on mm. the initial on the initial you know stimulus package, you know the outcomes of those have been quite mixed, uh, and certainly in terms of labour relations, the, the the job losses have been the biggest consequence of that. But the, the lack of um, you know the, the fact that I think the large labour unions have been able to really adapt their vocabulary quickly enough to really to deal with the changing landscape of what work mm-hmm. actually is. Um, and trying to use language of 1982 to deal with the 2020 um, issue. And I think that's very problematic, notwithstanding that organized labor has been losing currency for the last five to ten years. I mean, you know, Corsati mm. used to have great sway. I and mean, when they called a strike, they would stop traffic. And now, it's you know, it's, it's not not so much now, basically, mm. not so much now, not only because of the internal, you know, the internal skirmishes and, and just the, the ebbs and flows, but also because I think the value proposition for younger people going into the workforce and, the, and of course, the people who are the non-working class, um, the people who are engaged in economic activity, but who are the non-working class in the traditional, um, neoclassical sense of it, so that, you know, yeah. are really not feeling represented like sure. like the young man from from Kuanonguoma.
4: From.
0: Okay. Mille Mwohang Peku and Angela Fick, big thank you to the pair of you for helping us uh, reflect and take stock and make sense of the year that was. I wish uh, the pair of you all the best with this break. Uh, may Thank you rest, you. Uh, if indeed you will be taking a break, and uh, I certainly hope uh, <laughs> to see you uh, re-energised and uh, ready and raring to go in 2021. Thank you very much uh, for taking time out to speak to us this evening.
1: Thanks, Ayabong. Thank you.
0: It's a little after 9 p.m. That's where we're going to have to leave it. And those of us were down before 2020. Back with you again here at the start of next year in January of 2021. May you have a blessed uh, break and uh, may you uh, take this opportunity to rest, recharge your batteries and uh, may you come back rearing and ready to go uh, into 2021 and to face the challenges ahead and I uh, wish you strength and uh, certainly have yourselves a great break.